The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you all for being here tonight. It's interesting sitting up here and having her talk about me and watching your faces. Some of you are here and some of you are off somewhere. And, it's, and here we all are, so I'm going to get you here, right? So that we can connect and be together around the topic, this three-part series around the Buddha's teachings on conflict. I never have much conflict in my life just constantly. Most of my conflict is with Daniel. I don't know if it's the same with you, but I have conversations with several parts of myself quite frequently, and we get into arguments, Daniel and I. Last week, for those of you who were here and for those of you who were not here, let me give a quick summary of what we talked about. When the Buddha was asked why we have so much conflict in our lives, he taught three fundamental issues. One is that we're attached to things we like. We cling to what we like. We have attachment or greed for certain things. And just think for a moment in your life about those things that you prefer. You prefer people to be a certain way with you. You prefer yourself to be a certain way. You prefer life around you to be a certain way. And speaking for myself, I prefer for myself to show up in certain ways. So those are my attachments, what I'm greedy for. And then there are the attachments to things that I don't like. I don't like for you to be a certain way. I don't like for Daniel to be a certain way. I like for things around me to be ways that I like and I don't like certain things. Those are the things I push away. And if you've noticed, life doesn't care. It doesn't care what Daniel likes and it doesn't care what Daniel dislikes. It does what life does. And so when I'm attached to life being a certain way or you being a certain way, if you're in my life, then when you're not that way, I often zone out. I go into delusion. I go blank. I go away. I check out. I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to life. I'm not paying attention. I go off and do something that distracts myself from the things I don't like and perhaps I try to acquire more of what I like. And so through those three very simple fundamental ways, we create conflict. The important practice of mindfulness is to enable us to know those ways. And what do I mean by know those ways? You know right now that you're here. Your mind may leave from time to time, but your body is here knowing that when I know my attachments, I can know, ah, attachment is like this. Aversion is like this. Whoops, I just checked out and went away. Delusion 
ignorance, checking out is like this when I come back. So those three simple ways get us into conflict because our minds are untrained. And the Buddha wrote, speak or act with a corrupted mind, an untrained mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. So it's inevitable that suffering will arise. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, a trained mind, a mind that's mindful, a mind that we've trained over and over to return to the breath, to return to what's so for us in this moment, to return to right now over and over again millions of times. Training our mind that way creates a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. Wow, that sounds so cool. Having a never-departing shadow of happiness. So he continually urged us to practice so that we could have that experience. Also last week, I reframed slightly the fundamental teachings of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths to know conflict as dukkha. And dukkha is often translated suffering or dissatisfactoriness, and I told you about the etymology of that word, that it's a wagon wheel that's not true. So when the axle goes around in that hole of the wagon wheel, it creates a bumpy ride. And I don't know about you, but my life gets pretty bumpy sometimes. And then I know, ah, the dukkha of conflict is like this. It's not that I'm trying to fix it or change it. Nor is it that I'm accepting that this is the inevitable way my life is. I'm just simply knowing it. Like I know I have on a green shirt. With that same element of attention, I know that this is my experience right now. And then the second noble truth is that we cling, that clinging as the, is the source of our conflict with dukkha. We cling. So when I cling to my life being a certain way and I wake up and go, ah, clinging is like this, I know it. And knowing it, just the simple act of knowing it is starting to train the mind to true it up so that over and over again we come back to that simple knowing. And then there are times when happiness does appear for us, does arise, and we know, ah, the cessation of dukkha is like this. Peace is like this. Happiness is like this. I just know it. If I try to hold on to it, I'm clinging. If I push away that which isn't happiness, I'm in aversion. And when I blank out, I'm in delusion. But when I know it, I know it, and I know it, and I know that like everything in life, it will change. And I'll know the arising again of conflict, the arising again of dukkha. I'll know the clinging that creates that arising, and I'll know when it ceases. And so goes the flow of life, the adventure of life, the path of life. And the dukkha, and then the Buddha gave us the Eightfold Path with specific practices 
to guide us on that journey. And next week, for those of you who come back, I will talk about specific ways that we can communicate and con in conflict especially. We can communicate and connect practical ways that those eightfold teachings apply to our lives. And tonight, I'm going to talk about where does this conflict come from? There's a way that our brains work that is the source of this conflict. And it's pretty simple. Doesn't mean it's simple to deal with, but the origin of our conflict is the same for all of us. We have a certain view of the world and ourself in that world. And that worldview and that self-view creates our relationship to everything, especially including our relationship to conflict. And since all my conflict involves me, and I suspect it's the same way with you, if you've noticed that your conflict does inevitably involve you, you may think that it's all about the people out there, and for me it's mostly about their being wrong, because generally speaking, I'm right. But in fact, I'm involved in all my conflict. And this paradox, if it's about my view of myself and it's about the way I hold the, view, the world and it all centers around me, but yet this idea of self is so elusive, how do we sort that all out? And I believe that the Buddha taught that the source is in our individual stories around which we create ourselves. That's why he taught that the concept of anatta, the sense of self, is so fundamental to our freeing our minds. For most of my adult life, my young adult life, and my teenage life, and my childhood, I had a very distant relationship with my mother. Now, my mother is a very sweet lady. She's, since you know, if you were here last week, that my dad was a Southern Baptist preacher. She was obviously the wife of a Southern Baptist preacher. And that, in and of itself, is a challenging experience, as is being the son of a Southern Baptist preacher. But I did not have a very close relationship with either of my parents. And in fact, looking back on it, I see that I didn't have close relationships with anyone, especially not even myself. And after I was divorced from my first wife, I decided to go to therapy for the first time. And one day I was with my therapist and she said, Daniel, where do you store your fear? And it was easy for me to answer. I said, in my belly. And she said, well, what do you do when you feel afraid? And having no concept of meditation at that time, I had meditated a tiny little bit, but really no concept of it. And I had done a little yoga, but not enough to have it grounded in my being. I said, well, I try to get rid of it. As my grandmama would say, I try to get shut of it. What else would you do with fear? I don't want to feel afraid, so I try to get rid of it. And she said, well, have you ever considered experiencing your fear? 
And I thought to myself, man, am I paying for this? <laughs> That's the weirdest idea I have ever heard. Why in the world would I want to experience fear? Why I want to do something to distract myself, to not feel afraid. That's ridiculous. I was a young lawyer. I was really a good lawyer. And I could be aggressive and argumentative. And I definitely was with my therapist about this issue. <laughs> what did she know? <clears throat> Several nights or weeks later, I don't remember now, it's been a very long time, I was home on my little house out on Sullivan's Island, an island off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina. And I was doing what I often did then. I was smoking a uh, little marijuana and listening to Miles Davis. The latter I still do, the former sort of fell away. <laughs> but I enjoyed it then and it was starting to fall away but because smoking pot made me paranoid. And that particular night I started feeling that feeling of paranoia arising when I got stoned and I remembered my therapist words to me. What do you do with your fear? And I said, push it away. And she said, have you ever thought of experiencing it? And I remembered that and I sort of was stoned enough that I just sort of dropped into that experience of my fear and I felt it in my belly. And I went into my belly as you can only do when you're stoned. <laughs> well, that's not really true, but it felt like that then. And it was as if I went through a kaleidoscope ride of all the times in my life when I had been afraid. I was spinning and swirling through all of these experiences. My body was contorting on the couch. It was an horrendous experience. This spiral of memories, none of them were pleasant or joyful or happy. All of these places that I felt afraid. And I landed in a bedroom in Pickens County, South Carolina, a place that I'm sure many of you have visited. It's a highly sought-after tourist attraction <laughs> up in the Appalachian Mountains of South Carolina. And I was in a peculiarly shaped bedroom in a little town called Central South Carolina in a bassinet wrapped in a blue blanket on the banks of the Southern Railway where my mother and my sister and I lived during World War II while my father was off in the Pacific and someone was beating me. And I sort of startled out of that reverie, wondering what in the world was that? Along about that same time, I was starting to get into all sorts of wonderfully weird things through this strange therapist who asked me to experience my fear, and she sent me to a rolfer. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of rolfing. It's still around a little bit. It's a particularly intense form of not really massage, much more intense than, than massage, and each of a series of sessions, the rolfer works on the fascia, the connective tissue of the body, to release experiences that have your body in a certain way that's not healthy. I dreaded when he was going to get to my stomach. 
And the session he got to my stomach was excruciating. I thought then that it was because he was creating all this pain in my body. I realized sometime afterward that it was what I had done to my body in my unconsciousness. The pain was being released. And in that session, I went right back into that bedroom, right back into that bassinet. I was wrapped in that blue blanket, and it was my mother who was beating me. What in the world do you do with that? Now, my mother is this sweet, innocent, pretty uneducated, got married when she was 17, ran away from home with my dad. And the idea that she could do that was just, Daniel, you're really stoned. But it kept hanging around. I couldn't shake it. And so this not very good relationship with my mom became worse. You know, it was during World War II. My dad was off in the Pacific. Maybe she lost it. I did something and she just lost it. Worried about whether he was dead on some island in the Pacific. What was going to happen? I didn't know. And what could I do with it, I thought. I can't talk to her about it. Could I? Because what if it wasn't true? And I brought it up and accused her of something like that. That would be pretty horrible. But what if it was true? And I talked to her about it. That would be even worse. So, I don't know if you have ever, in dealing with a conflict like that in your life, decided to do nothing, like I did then, but I bet you have, And actually, we don't do nothing. We do lots. And I did because my not very good relationship with my mother then got worse. Because when I saw her after that, there was this child molester (laughs) screen that came across. In reality, I was seeing a story of the origins of my view of Daniel, my view of the world. I was seeing a source of how I related to conflict. In a wonderful book called The Compassionate Brain, How Empathy Creates Intelligence, Dr. Jared Hutter, a neuroscientist in Germany, writes that our brains are hardwired to form memories while we're processing to guide our processing of information, especially when we're traumatized. That's the way our brains work. And we have to do that to discern who's in our in-group and who's in our out-group. Evolutionarily, that's how come we survived. Our ancestors, we're in their gene pool because they figured out quickly who was in their in-group and who wasn't. The people who didn't figure that out, they dropped out of the evolutionary pool. They are not our ancestors. So, when we are traumatized, our brains create a certain memory to help us know who's a friend and who's a foe. The Buddha calls that the five aggregates of clinging. 
the five ways we create clinging, which as you recall is the second noble truth, the source of the dukkha of our conflict, the suffering of our conflict. So the way we cling, the way we create that second noble truth, the clinging that leads to suffering, is through five particular aspects of reality, which the Buddha called the aggregates, the total sum of the way we see everything. Everything we see is through these five aggregates. We can't see or know anything except through them. The first one is form. So we see the material form. The second is feeling. I see a material form, this uh, podium, for example, and I either like it, I don't like it, or I'm neutral about it. It's not the kind of feelings such as that we use in the West of loving or oh, I feel wonderful, I feel happy. It's not those kind of feelings. The Buddha said there are three feeling tones, three reactive feeling tones. We like something, we don't like it, or we're neutral about it. You notice that that tracks greed, hatred, and delusion. His teachings are always so precise and so simple because he understood so many distinctions about the way our minds work. Distinctions are the way we understand the world. A football player, for example, knows many distinctions about the game of football that the rest of us don't know. A computer scientist knows many distinctions about computers that the rest of us don't know. In fact, I hope I never know them. They make me crazy. But that's beside the point. A good doctor knows distinctions about our bodies that we don't know. The Buddha knew distinctions about our mind and he offered those to us and told us not to believe him but to practice so that we could see them for ourselves. The five aggregates of clinging are a fundamental set of those distinctions. So there's the form, the material form, my feeling about it, I like it, I don't like it, or I'm neutral about it, and my perception or concept. I create a perception or concept about everything, and so do you. This is a podium. I know it's a podium, I don't have to think about it. I look at it, I know it. And then there's the volitional aspect, or my intention. I know what this is for. When I see a podium, I know that it's for me to put my notes on. That's what it's for. And then finally, my consciousness. I know it. Podium, I know it. So, the form, this hard wood, the feeling, I like it, I don't like it, I'm neutral. The perception or concept, the label for it, podium. What it's for, the intentional aspect of it, to hold notes. And five, my ability to know it. And all of those happen simultaneously. We don't think about the distinctions. 
The distinctions are incredibly important when we're learning to train our minds and when we're dealing with conflict because how the third aggregate, the perception or concept works, is crucial to the reason we get stuck in conflict. It is a top-down process. It is not a bottom-up process. When I experience the fear in my body, that stoned night in my beach house listening to Miles Davis, that was a bottom-up process. I didn't have a concept for it. It just arose. I didn't have a label or a concept because it wasn't controlled in that way. It flowed in a different way. And Dr. Hooter writes that modern neuroscience confirms that most of the fundamental, that the most fundamental influence on how the neuronal networks and interconnections existing in our brains are created and used are our life experiences through which we build up memories that help us think. Now, isn't that a bummer? Our life experiences create the memories that become the concepts that top-down influence the way we think. But if you're like me, and you have a life experience when you're one or two, and it creates a concept that influences your thinking, it's not a very skillful concept, and it didn't arise from a mature, distinct, mindful brain, it arose from a little one or two year old baby boy's brain. And bummer, I'm stuck with it. That's the way our brains work. These experiences are the result of subjective reactions to what we perceive. That's the five aggregates at work. You can resist this if you want to. It's all right. Doesn't take away the truth of it. That's the way it works. There's another wonderful book by Dr. Dan Siegel who teaches at uh, Spirit Rock every now and then. And if you're interested in neuroscience, I encourage you to go hear him when he teaches. It's called The Mindful Brain. And this has got a little bit of a heavy scientific language to it. I'll try to clean it up a little bit, but it's very important. He says, our top-down processing sends an expectational bias. So when the third aggregate of clinging is work, that wor at work, that perception, that concept is working, it sends an expectational bias out into our awareness that alters incoming perception. So, I know a flower. Oh, flower. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to try to figure out what it is. I have a concept called flower. When I see a flower, it's an instantaneous knowing. And my experience is altered. I filter out things 
that don't fit that concept. I don't have a total experience of that flower. It's driven by my concept. Do I like it? Do I not like it? Am I neutral about it? If I don't care about that kind of flower, I hardly see it. If I love roses, whoo, and all these memories come from them that are pleasant. If I'm allergic to it, look, a different kind of reaction. All by the cortical top-down processing that alters the perception of what I see. That's great for a flower. We're busy. We don't have time to think about it. But it's not too good in relationships. It doesn't work so well there. And that prior learning, that perception, those concepts, help us to be more efficient information processors. They're called invariant representations in neuroscience. But the Buddha called it concept or perception. These invariant representations determine what we see. So that's the bad news tonight. We're stuck with the way our brains work. And our brains work this way because evolutionarily it's how we survived. We had to make quick decisions. Is that saber-toothed tiger? Or is that a human being that's in my tribe? Or is it a human being that's going to spear me? Or is it a snake? What is it? I got to know that. And our brains evolved in a way that created this top-down processing determining how we experience life. And when you think about it, we have a staggering number of experiences, especially as children, that we don't know what they are until we're told or explained. And we're told and explained by someone who is coming from their own invariant representations of the things that they liked, didn't like, or were neutral about. So their invariant representations influence our invariant representations and determine those representations. And we're stuck with that on top of our own lack of awareness. And no matter how much we learn about good communication or good conflict skills, it's still not enough to overcome the way our brains work and the Buddha's fundamental awareness of the five aggregates of clinging. We must train our brains. We must practice mindfulness in order to gain this awareness. It's as if, as I said last week, we took a sled up to the top of a hill and we went down the hill in the fresh snow and then we pulled that sled right back up the same track and went down it again exactly and back and forth over and over. We create a deep, literally a neuronal pathway in our brain. We develop our brains that way. And so we know it that way. And when we're in relationship with someone who has a different neuronal pathway, who knows things in a different way that we do, either sparks of connection get created or sparks fly. 
And usually it's a combination of the two because our invariant representations are coming up against their invariant representations. And guess who's right and who's wrong? The yogis call that samskaras. Those are, that's how they get created. It's the way our brain develops and that's what the Buddha was teaching with the five aggregates of clinging. There's another way that this works as well. We have been taught through long history of Newtonian physics that you can break matter down into its separate parts and know it that way. And so we have this separative view of life. Quantum physics is teaching us a whole different relational, connectional, uncertain, fluid view of life. But our worldviews haven't caught up to that yet. So we have a separative view. And when my invariant representations run up against yours, we're in trouble. So that's all the bad news. But it's important to take that in and sit with it and begin to notice, to know that's what our mindfulness practice is about. When I'm sitting and I'm following my breath and I wake up and I'm off in a story, like for example, a story about my mother who was a child molester and beat me when I was two years old. Ha, I know that story. I'm with it. I watch it. I gain insight from it. I see what it does to my body. I see what it does to my mind. I see how it hooks me and pulls me away. I see how it contorts my heart. And I see, perhaps, I begin to see how it's impacted on all of my relationships. And I began to see that I formed an invariant representation called women who love me are dangerous. Now, try having good intimate relationships with that invariant representation. It doesn't work out too well. And when I look back on my life, I see, ah, that was determining how I interpreted how women who loved me were acting. Did I know that what was going on? No, I had no clue until later in my life. So with insight practice, we began to see those invariant representations and understand them. The practice of training our mind. Some of you may have heard of the EST training. It's still around, I think, not very much anymore, but in the late 70s, even down in Charleston, South Carolina, it was a pretty big thing. And I 
especially after this experience with my therapist and getting this whole thing about my mother and getting Rolf, I was up for doing anything that was going to help me wake up. So I did the S training. And it was a very powerful wake-up experience. It was sort of like uh, mindfulness on steroids. But because it was like that, it doesn't have a lasting effect like our practice can have. But it certainly had a jarring awakening effect for me. And I saw in that training what Werner Earhart, the creator of the S training, called number one experiences. And number one experiences were what neuroscientists would call invariant representations, what the Buddha called the third aggregate of clinging, the concepts or perceptions, on top of a traumatic experience, like being beaten by your mother. Those number one experiences alter our perception of every experience thereafter that's like that experience, and we create a whole stack. And if we find that number one and pull it out, Werner taught, we can shift that and throw it all up. That's what our mindfulness practice does over time. And I saw at that S training that that experience with my mom and what I was left with was in fact a number one experience. And I couldn't continue to sit on it and do nothing. Or, as I said, to do a lot by ignoring it and pretending like it wasn't impacting on me. So I, lit, I took the S training in Philadelphia because it wasn't happening in Charleston, but... You had to go everywhere to do things in Charleston except get stoned and listen to Miles Davis. <laughs> so I went to Philadelphia and I took the S training and then I came home. And I literally got in my car and drove to my parents' house. Now even going to visit my parents was an unusual thing. And they were thrilled that I was home. And I was contorted inside. How could I possibly do this? You were stoned. You have no idea what was happening. It couldn't, you know, you're just making this up. All the internal dialogue that I imagine you're not familiar with, but if you want me to describe it in more detail, I'm happy to privately. But I knew somehow, somehow in my heart, I knew that I had to pass through this gateway. I had to. So the next morning when my dad went off to the church, I told my mom I had something I wanted to talk to her about, and we sat down on the floor in the den in her impeccably clean house. You've never been in a house that clean, I promise you. I'm sure that she raked the shag rugs after I left. <laughs> and I started telling her the story. As you can imagine, very halting, because I didn't know. And I sort of made excuses along the way about, you know, maybe I just made this up, but I told it just about like I told you a few minutes ago. And as I was telling it, I saw the look on her face, and I knew 
that it was true. And when I finished, she looked at me and she said, why, I haven't thought of that in 33 years is what it would have been then. And you have it almost exactly right. She said, you were in that funny-shaped bedroom and we were in that house on the Southern Railway where when the railroad train went by, the beds shook and moved across the floor. And you were wrapped in a blue blanket. You had tonsillitis really badly. And I knew that story. And you almost died, she said. And your grandmama and grandpa and I would take turns staying up with you, walking you at night. And Doc Swords, who was a cousin, prescribed for you paragoric. Now, I don't know why he would prescribe for a two-year-old or a one-year-old paragoric. It's an opium-based drug that was used in the late 19th and early 20th century for, to treat diarrhea, and I'm sure it had some sedative effects. She said, I gave you that paragoric and you had a violent reaction, turn blue and stop breathing. And I panicked. My baby was dying. And I started screaming because I didn't know what to do. And fortunately, your grandmama was in the house instead of down in the garden. She came running in, snatched you up off the bed and started pounding you on the back so that you would get your breath and live, and you did. So my almost was huge because I was beaten, but it was a life-giving beating. And certainly it made sense that I would attribute it to my mother because she had given me the paragoric and I heard her scream and that was the last conscious knowing that I had. So just think for a moment how many of those we all have. How many almost perceptions that have become the cortical top-down processing invariant representational concepts that determine how we see ourselves, each other, and the world. It was a stunning moment, as you can imagine. We both burst into tears. And then I remember sitting there on her shag carpet that I'm sure she raked after I got up. And I realized the absurdity of it all, the incredible paradoxical absurdity of it all, that we have so many of those experiences and how could it be that we would know them and be able to understand them and change our concepts? And I started to laugh hysterically. And so did she. So instead of holding it with the depressive awareness of how overpowering it is, 
that we've all had those, instead of holding it that you have to figure out yours, like I was gifted in that story with mine, we have been offered, you are here because you know of the practice of mindfulness, where we can know the form, that experience I had of having my breath lost from the paragoric, we can know the feeling, which was aversion for sure in that story. The concept that got created, women who love you are dangerous, the volitional aspect of it to keep me alive, to save my life, and the knowing of it, the consciousness of it. So in my practice of mindfulness, I can know the five aggregates with each and every awareness that arises in my practice and over time free my mind. That's what the Buddha gave us. Practice. So we've got time for a few questions. In the back. Thanks again for a wonderful Dharma talk. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful listeners. I'm going to listen to you. I'm, going, I'm even going to listen to your recordings when they clean it up and they put them on the website. I'm stuck with the story in the sense that I could follow a lot of the, um, the parallel with it, but I think in my case, maybe in others, we didn't have the gift. I didn't have the gift of that mother conversation at age 35. I'm kind of left with the mystery where, where you might have been had you not done the est and gone back to your parents' house. That's right. So what do I do? What do people then do who didn't do the brave thing you did? That's a great question. And that's why I pointed it to the five aggregates of clinging. There's a humility that we need to cultivate. When I step into relationship with my mom or my dad or my sister or my spouse or my friend or anyone, and I find myself clutching and retreating and pulling away. Remember this moment and find a humility. Ah, this is the dukkha of conflict, of separation. I know it and I want to connect with you. To connect with you, I must have the courage to open my heart, even not knowing what is the barrier. The courage it takes us to generate that connection. That's our practice. I don't need to know why it is I feel separate from you. 
There's a million reasons, a million of these stories. That's why I feel separate from my mother or my father. I don't need to know them. What I need to know is that that's the way the brain works. That's what happened. Something like that happened. And that's why I feel this clutching in my heart. That's why I'm angry. That's why I separate. That's why I go away. And I can choose the courage it takes to choose the unknown of let me reach across here and drop my concept of you. So in a way, it's almost not irrelevant, but it's secondary, the fact that you had the clean-up conversation with your mom. The root, if, root was the image you had when you were stoned. Yes. That's where the starting point of this is. Yes. And your, the other part, the, the sequel, where you had the, the truthful conversation with your mom was just a, an add-on gift. That's right. Not necessary. Makes a good story. Captured your attention. Helped me give a talk. It's a, it's a good, you know, otherwise you might have fallen asleep. You won't remember it. That story will help you remember it. Maybe so I a, Maybe I can get a date now, right? No yeah, that's it. Another question. Uh, what if in the practice of mindfulness... Um, you start to uncover some of these invariant types of underpinnings that led you to make decisions, let's say, you know, 15 years ago when you went into a relationship with someone that you now kind of go, wow, I, a, lot, a big component of this choice of this person was related to the fact that I had this thing going on. You know, let's say it was abandonment or something, you know, yes. and this person represented security, yet now you're sort of going, you know, wow, okay, this is gone. Yes. You, you know, that's a root of some conflict. Yes. Yes, it is. It's the root of a great deal of conflict because I have created my friendship with you, for example, based on your reminding me of someone that I liked. For some reason, they, I didn't feel abandoned around them. I felt safe around them. And you somehow stimulate unconsciously that memory. And then as I get to know you, I find out I feel not so safe around you for whatever reason. And I wonder, why in the world did I choose him as my friend? He's not acting like he should He's not taking care of me. I still feel abandoned. It must be his fault because he's not turning out like he's supposed to. Sound familiar to anyone? So, I find that moment of knowing, aha, this is the knowing of the dukkha of conflict. Ah, I'm clinging, what's your name, sir? Just your first name, Dave. I'm clinging to an image of Dave. I thought he was someone who would keep me from feeling abandoned. And it's not turning out that way. I'm clinging. Ah, clinging is like this. 
when I know the conflict of dukkha, the first noble truth, and I have the awareness of knowing that I'm clinging to your being a certain way that I like, and not being a way that I don't like, when I know that, just in the moment, over and over again, I come back to knowing that. Aha, it feels like this. This is what's going on. Whenever I'm around Dave, it's like this. Oh, it's like this. The Buddha gave us the great awareness that everything changes. In my invariant representation of you, that concept doesn't change. So I'm holding you in a fixed place. It's not really you, because you change, and so do I. If I notice the concept, I allow you to be free, to be the fluid, changing, different person that you are. And then I get to know the cessation of that dukkha of conflict. Ah, Dave is really like this. Oh, wow. I see you in your fullness instead of in my invariant representation trap that I've put you in. I free you from it in here, which is the only place you live. So, once again quickly, I have one of those top-down concepts, a fear of abandonment. I meet you. You satisfy it. So I like you. We become friends. And then it turns out you don't act the way that's aligned with my concept. And so I start to push you away. I practice my mindfulness and I see that that's what I'm doing. Oh, my fear of abandonment is arising. Ah, I'm knowing the dukkha of conflict, the dukkha of suffering. I'm knowing it with Dave. Here it is, my fear of abandonment. I'm pushing him away. He's my friend, but I'm pushing him away. Ah, conflict of dukkha is like this. I'm clinging. Ah, the source of that conflict is I'm clinging to Dave being a certain way. I only see him and like him and feel close to him when he's a certain way. Ah, but impermanence. He's more than that limited concept that I have of him. Ah, the cessation of that dukkha. Because I open up, I know my concept, I free my mind, momentarily from it and I see you whole. I see you fluid. I see you changing. I see you beyond my fear of abandonment and my heart touches yours and the conflict has ceased. Does it come back? Yes. Do I have to know it again? Yes. Do I have to be reminded again? Yes. Does it cease again? When I let it, when I know it, it does cease again. The trick is, am I mindful enough to know it when it ceases? It's a practice.
So let's sit for a moment. Touch the swirling emotions that you have. The wondering about your stories of conflict, the wondering about this great two questions that we have to anchor those feelings. And know that the journey of life is just that, a journey with moments of clinging, with moments of suffering, and moments of peace. And the more we practice, the more we free ourselves from those invariant representations and conflicts, the less we cling, and the more we experience freedom. May the merit of our time together touch our own hearts especially and all those we love.